there's almost a disincentive from starting life over on a new chain just because you wipe your reputation clean. If the chain that you're starting on is niche, you might not be able to carry that reputation with you from anywhere else either, to anywhere else. That was Ben, co-founder at Decentland, a multi-chain social and decentralized identity protocol. I really enjoyed this conversation with Ben because on the multi-chain aspect, Ben takes a best tool for the job approach and we get some really interesting insights as to how Nier compares with other ecosystems. On the decentralized identity front, I really enjoyed being able to break it down from the user perspective, including some very raw and honest personal experiences and use cases. For our conversation that started trying to map the origins of Decentland in the Arweave ecosystem, this is a wild journey that will take you to many unexpected places with a lot of insights along the way. Final note before I let you go. The conversation flowed so naturally from the very beginning that I didn't even get a chance to record a formal introduction. So when the beat stops, we're going to jump right into the conversation with Ben. Without further ado, let's enjoy this wide ranging conversation with Ben. Bye. Especially young ecosystems need that. Part of the centralization is having multiple leaders or styles of leadership mm -hmm. or lines of thinking. I really like that even though we have a gangster repertoire of characters, I just love learning from different builders, especially you have the cross ecosystem pollination, which Descent Land brings in. So yeah. welcome, Benjamin. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> Absolute pleasure to be here. How Finally getting to meet you after see, seeing you everywhere. I'm often in the governance forums having a read and I'm in the different telegram groups and things like that. Cool. Being a near ecosystem legend. Oh, thank you. Oh, wow. That's, I wasn't expecting that so early in the episode, but <laughs> how do I come across on the farm? Because the farm can be a tough place. Let's just put it that way. Oh, I know. Balanced, I would say. There are a lot of critics though, aren't there? I think people are very concerned with how the foundation spends its money. And that's fair, to be honest. This whole recent debacle around creative style was like, it was entertaining, <laughs> but it was also, yes. uh, I guess, a symptom of I'm not sure a symptom of what, maybe there not being enough safeguards in place in the first place or yeah, I think it ex exposed a very human side as well of people that are protective over the thing that they feel like they have a part of as well. I agree. The, I think the reason I want to ask is because I spent way too long studying law and there's a lot of reading as you probably know, cause you're from the motherland. You read all the high court judgments and the privy council and it was funny to me that the more I read these judgments, you can start to absorb some of the expressions and the reasoning and the structuring of the sentences. And even though it's nowhere near what the court case would be, sometimes when I try to explain my reasoning, work my way through, this is a criteria, this is where you are, this is why you may get funding or maybe get a little bit less or maybe change it. And yes, I don't know, sometimes I feel silly writing, is this too formal? Is this post too long? But I do feel that it is important that, especially, it's probably equally important. If you're approving funds, justify why. Other people mm -hmm. may use that as an example. We actually want more people doing better work. But also if you're rejecting someone. I've been in that position. I hate being rejected and not understanding why, especially if you're a genuine contributor and oh, you yeah. want to find a way to make it work. And so yeah, if you go to the forum, you can probably find 
a lot of my writing over the last 18 months, which is actually a really good way to start it because Decent Land is all about that online identity and being able to capture who you are and carry that across. May not be one-to-one because the farm is technically not on-chain, Well, maybe why don't we start having a really quick overview of what Decent Land is and what you do at Decent Land and we see how it keeps evolving. It's getting tough to describe Decent Land in a short way. So I can start with how we started. It was originally an on-chain social protocol for basically setting up a decentralized on-chain community and having the data stored on Arweave. So I don't know, maybe you you do or don't know much about Arweave, but I can give some background on that. Permanent data storage blockchain is specialized at storing data only really that's the whole point of it i love our weave back in the day oh, okay. when i came across near i had a an l1 thesis and i was like look one of them or multiple are going to win i set myself a target to accumulate like a minimum of each one of the blockchain ironically near was the one that accumulated the most and the one that performed the worst And because I like to suffer, it's also the one that I doubled down personally, my time. Mm -hmm. But amongst all this L1 competition, I really liked Arweave because it was just very pragmatic and very unique. And I guess that at the time it was more focused on like the storage side of things. And I had already heard some of the limitations that IPFS was bringing in storage and how that was impairing some people. I also heard early days that Mintbase was integrating with Arweave do you yes. have any story around how you bump into R with what really jumped out? Are you, what problem are they trying to solve in a very useful app centric way? Personally, how I bumped into R is it was because it was the first chain I ever en- engaged with. Funnily enough, like I, yeah, yeah. So like before Ethereum, and this was like 2019, I think I was working in like a web two job on the side, I was running a publication with a friend where we would write about what we thought was interesting. And I came across the founder of Arweave on Twitter when it was like super new and just like an idea and a white paper. What's the same? Chris? Yeah. Sam. Sam. Yeah. Shout out to Sam. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. So then I, I, I messaged him really to get an interview and he turned up with his whole team and he was like, took it really seriously, even though we were no one. And that was really lovely. And he answered my dumb questions at the time. This was a, a time when I had only really just started to understand what blockchain is. And uh, yeah. Because the interview I, was for what role or what were you studying at the time? Sorry, I may have missed that. Oh yeah. I was simply interviewing him for, for an article on a side project website that I was doing. I think I was the first person to actually give them media coverage, <laughs> as you could call it that. I got in really early and was very excited. Like I remember, I don't know where I saw it. I think I saw a tweet talking about permanent archiving of data. And at the time I was very much into archiving as well. I was ripping old. VHS onto my hard drives and things like this and trying to save rare data and very obsessed with the internet archive and uploading stuff onto Wikimedia from my local area to try and enrich open source public data sets. That was very interesting to me to try and do that. I would also at the same time griping about the issues with centralization on this same blog. I came together to realize that this is actually the ultimate solution really for storing things forever that matter. And then I guess. When I wanted to quit my Web 2 job, because I just got far too interested in building in Web 3, I spoke again to Sam and said, so this is what I'm planning on doing. Because I remember at the time they actually had a marketing role open at Arweave, like from a year ago or something. 
And he said, but actually, we're not hiring for a marketing role anymore. We are like outsourcing that to the community. But what we have is Arweave News. Arweave.news was just started up at the time with one, one person behind it. And so I joined as the co-founder of Arweave News just to get that off the ground. We went on like that quite a while. The way that Decentland came about is that the person who was in charge of doing the programming there also had just gone through one of the Arweave accelerators for the very early edition of Decentland before it was anything like it is today. And he said to me, like, oh, we need someone who can actually talk on calls to VCs and things like this. And I joined to help him do raises. And at the time, I, it sounds funny, but I developed the product by doing so many different calls with investors that I would get feedback on what I was saying to them as, as far as the vision went and then develop the vision further and then improve the pitch and also then the roadmap. Around that sort of time, we actually found editors and writers and everything to decentralize Arweave News properly and make it run on its own. And I freed up my mind space to, to go and spend the majority of my time now on, on decent land. At the time, it was just, how do we get social everything on chain? Because we thought this is actually really important for stuff like governance. When you're doing governance off chain, there is basically a chance for tyrants almost, the god administrators to censor things that are going on and... Depending who you talk to, they'll say, I am one of them. <laughs> oh, are you? I know where the concerns are coming from. I'm fascinated by the story. I was actually going to ask you what's happening with RV Wave News these days. And is it the equivalent of near week or what sort of marketing role it fills within the RWeave ecosystem? There aren't any other like dedicated Arweave news sources in the ecosystem. So it is like a satellite organization to Arweave, originally funded by Arweave and sometimes still gets some funding from Arweave, but mostly it runs on its own. Steam now, it's, it's running spaces with the Arweave community. It's putting out weekly reports, doing play-by-play different bits of news that come out of the ecosystem. And we're trying really to actually make it more decentralized in Web3 as well. So right now we're running it on WordPress, which we think is rubbish. And it's actually been really hindering us. Late last year, I hired somebody to just start over, import everything into a custom CMS that's linked to our weave so that all the posts and things like that are permanently archived at the time of publish. And then we can do kind of anything with it. Once once we do that, we could do tip our weave tokens to the authors. We can do profit sharing of those tips across the different co-authors. As soon as you enable the Web3 element of it, it could become a lot more than just a simple WordPress installation. But yeah, that, that's the idea at the moment of what we're going for. And one of the, actually before Decentland, it's going to sound like I'm involved in just a hectic amount of things. But before Decentland, we launched Permacast as well. It's you. <laughs> yeah. I've been talking to someone from Permacast, both on the WePod account and my personal account. That is me. Are you serious? Yeah, that yeah, that's funny. Me. I'm not sure it was me that reached out to you, but I'm definitely continuing on that DM thread. Yeah. I was going to say, yeah, like, somebody reached out to me and they were like, oh, lovely. We look forward to listening to Benjamin's podcast. And we got that one wasn't made. <laughs> Not that secret, by the way. But yeah, you know about Primacast, but anyway, it's just an easy way to get your podcasts on Arweave and then distribute them across to different end user platforms like Spotify and iTunes whilst having them live on Arweave. And yeah, I think it's generally a passion for getting stuff to live on chain forever. Yeah, that's the Arweave news slash Primacast arc. I love it. I really enjoyed the early origins and just how approachable Sam is. 
Mm. Because I actually had a very similar experience. I'm just trying to remember. I think it was a call or a Twitter space. It was something leading up to an Arweave hackathon. And some crazy anon that met on Twitter. We were contemplating potentially entering into the hackathon together. And I was just blown away by the founder of the protocol. Not only was he there available and super approachable. But he was very patient and he would just explain things that they're in the documentation and you would have thought, oh, probably go do some reading and then come ask questions. I was really impressed. A big part of like why Arweave was successful, I think. There was in the, I guess around like 2020, early 2021, there was a series of these kind of events like Open Web Foundry. That might have been what you were looking at at the time. It's actually where all of the successful Arweave projects have come from. And Sam would be there to mentor through and give presentations and then there'd be a demo day, et cetera. But it was all very much community building plus getting people to quit their jobs and join the RWB ecosystem at the same time and get raise and get enough of a basic salary to start and take the gamble on it. I don't know whether that's unique to Arweave, but it certainly had a low barrier to entry. And if you were decent and thoughtful and you create something novel, then you would definitely get the time of day from the core staff. It does make me wonder whether it is unique to with because yes, you're right. It was the open web country that I considered entering back in the day. And if I were to put it side by side with Nier, the Nier core team is approachable. Like I know them all. There's definitely pathways. I don't think anyone has been deprived of those resources. But it's interesting how looking at with especially doing research for this podcast, it simultaneously felt like they're doing their own thing. It's like, nah, we're not even entering the noise, the EVM wars. They're doing oh, their yeah. own thing. But it's also grown a lot. Like I see a level of maturity in Arweave where maybe it's because I spent several months without looking, but the progress is meaningful to say the least. Mm. Last time that I played with it, I downloaded a JSON with my R key and there was not much to do on chain, really. There was a shitty website builder that looked like a website from the 60s. <laughs> so I was really impressed to see how small, community-driven, more meaningful connections. So I think at first, Arweave was literally like a browser. It was obviously actually a chain as well, but like the way you would interface with it would be this browser extension that you could go on a news article and click the extension and save it to Arweave and pay a little bit of Arweave token, which actually in today's money would probably be like $50. <laughs> but at the time it was pennies or something. That was really the only sort of thing you could do on Arweave. And then the first batch of products came like the obvious one, like a Google Drive alternative where you can just put your files there. And then like less obvious ones, like a smart contract platform for running smart contracts on, yeah, on Arweave. Yeah, actually, no, it's called SmartWeave originally. This is like really old. Those are my and days. That's when I was involved. That's when I bought my Arweave tokens. Yes. Which, by yes. the way, I haven't been able to remove them from the shitty exchange I used because I refused to KYC. Oh, no. It's back down a lot. But during the good days, I was like, nah, fuck it. I'll take it out somehow one day. And uh, it's still there. I should probably go check if I haven't been rocked. But Oh, no. Yeah, it was. A, yeah, there was these small contracts. There was this small contract standard. It was painful. Like we originally built Permacast using it, and it's almost like 
Bitcoin slowness. It would take 10 minutes for an interaction to happen. It's like the opposite of near. It would be very slow. It would be bad UX. And then stuff like EXM came along, which provides an intermediary for it. So it does off-chain computation with the state settled back to Arweave. I think there's actually quite a lot of Arweave intermediary stuff that it's not as off-chain as off-chain implies, but yes. And then that, now that is like web, web two UX, perfectly uh, usable. And so we actually rewrote a lot of stuff from SmartWeave to use EXM recently just to actually make it able to be stomached. And it was, it was one of the reasons why we gravitated towards Nier as well at the time when we were still working this out. The combination of Arweave for vast amounts of cheap data storage and Nier for instant execution. It's like using the best tools in the box, really, but exactly what you need them for. It's interesting to me to see how we're simultaneously entering a multi-chain world where mm -hmm. things talk to each other or you can bundle things together. But I do start to wonder whether there would be inbuilt benefits to staying within the ecosystem. I only found out about EXM two hours ago and I was like, you can write smart contracts with JavaScript and it's got great UX and it goes in R with. It actually made me wonder how would it compare with writing an app using JavaScript or near native. If you have any insights about that, let me know. Yeah, the development process for EXM is, is it's pretty similar to a, you can write smart contracts using the near JavaScript SDK. It's quite similar. It's maybe a bit simpler. It's the tooling is not all there yet though. I think that the near JS SDK is probably, and the CLI is like one of some of the best developer tooling I've ever used. It's just super high quality for Arc protocol, which required us to, to build on almost every chain, at least a simple app on every chain and link them together. Nier was like by far the best developer experience for that. And it, that, that is what pushed us to double down on that and, and build a, build a big chunk of the rest of the app on Nier as well. Have you guys documented this multi-chain expansion? Because I am passionate and desperately looking for more resources that actually compare the developer experience on different chains. Ah. Okay. No, we've not done developer facing comparison or anything like that. Now, usually talk about it in, in podcasts though. <laughs> Maybe it doesn't have to be too technical, but if somebody on the team wanted to take it upon themselves to write a series, you know, how do they compare what's different, what's similar? Even what we're talking about now, there's JavaScript on Nier, there's also Rust. Solana uses Rust. Mm -hmm. What's the difference? What things are great? Which things need improvement? I think potentially that would be type of content that the marketing DAO would be willing to fund. I like when projects are able to create content that itself enables them to monetize in some way or another. We're not funding the project directly, but if they are in a position to create a unique original content, be more than happy to explore that. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. That Rust comparison is interesting too. The first time that any of us on the team wrote Rust, we wrote using the Neo Rust SDK and found that it's really actually simple. I mean, everything well-documented. Yeah, Nier has been quite a springboard for us to, to build things quickly that work well. Do you also yeah, write Rust in other ecosystems? We haven't yet. No, no, we we will be using Rust, I think, for this network. The substrate chains that you can use on Octopus, I think they're built in Rust and to remove some element of centralization that we currently rely on in the Arc protocol code base, we were thinking of writing as an app chain on Octopus. And so we've been speaking with the Octopus team, and that might also be, awesome. be like a, a route for us to add extra use cases to the token when it's launched as a proof of stake token on Octopus. Alpha. This is yeah. 
Yeah, so yeah, that's like a maybe the end of this year kind of thing once we've got all of the things together because it's actually a really much more of a huge undertaking than we first imagined to build social toolkit, especially on a chain that is not well connected with other chains natively. So like the EVM can take advantage of the fact that you've probably done most of your value transaction on Ethereum or some of the roll-up. And that's where like your identity probably lives with your .eth address and things like this. When you're using a chain that's not EVM compatible and it's completely foreign to everything else, you have to build bridges to it. That's really what our protocol was. It's like, this is how you attest your Arweave identity is in fact your identity on Ethereum and on Nia and on Solana and all of these chains that don't natively cooperate. So we had to do that as for a start, because if we were going to do token gating in a social sense, then no one necessarily cares about the Arweave token. I mean, it's just the, the raw facts, uh, the harsh truth. And you would much rather get much more use for users if they were to be able to prove that they own a crypto pump to the protocol than if they were to prove that they could, that they own an Arweave NFT that it has no volume on no one's heard of. It may be changing with EXM and I'd be fascinated to learn more about the Arweave native applications. Probably the first time that most people heard about Arweave was when Solana announced that they're going to store all the historical transactions on Arweave. There's been several such announcements of large protocols saying, yep, Arweave is good at what it does. They can handle large amounts of data, cheap, permanent, and yeah, to bring a really interesting point around the compatibility. So how do you deal with the bridges or what is the state of the bridges? Because once again, what I've seen so far, it seems like it's pretty advanced and moving along. So I'd be curious to see how that has evolved. What we use to essentially attest identity between chains to be able to prove this Arweave user is this Ethereum user is this Nia user is an EXM contract, which accepts multiple wallets to sign it. This is probably a new concept. It's almost like EXM in this case, while it samples data back to Arweave, it's chain agnostic in the fact that you can sign the interactions with whatever the contract allows you to sign it with. So you could say the same contract could be signed with a near wallet and log your address and claim that attest that it is you because of that unique signature. And it could be signed also with a wallet that's from internet computer or are we whatever. We use this as a chain agnostic layer that you can sign different identities into. And then that contract state stores the different linkages between identities. And then that gets fed off to an Oracle on Nia, which we are building an integration with AstroDAO to be able to say, I can vote in this DAO because I own a Aurora bot on Aurora and also a Neo NFT or whatever, like whatever kind of complex rules you might need to make for token gate communities. How it works initially is like this chain agnostic contract that can be signed with different wallets. That's interesting. Do you know of any other protocols or applications could be on any chain that are leveraging the functionality from EXM? Because it's not traditional bridging as in the asset physically moving elsewhere. No. It's, it's simply identity attestation. So it's just designing like, from anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. And we use that really just for the identity part because the asset moving thing that will always need some sort of centralized party, really third party almost to, to bridge an NFT. What you're doing is sending it to someone else that you trust who burn it and then mint it on another chain for you. And there's no real so, way. So interesting. There's a thread here. I swear. I think I'm fascinated by online identity. And I'd like to know your take on privacy and pseudonymity. Mm -hmm. Maybe the way that we can start it is, I was really interested when you said free storage forever and the origins of mass storing, like the web 
So there's like a public record for everyone to see. But also there is definitely a use case for permanent storage of things that are private, say my yeah. personal Dropbox with my mm-hmm. photos from childhood and stuff. So yeah, I'd be fascinated to see how you see this from the experience that you've had with users and other applications and just a general interest, like which area has perhaps stronger pain point or where is more interest from users. And then I have a pretty good point that I'll bring up after that. So yes, I think the private thing is interesting. You can do it on Arweave because you can encrypt data going in and then you can have it so that can only be decrypted in the browser with the person's wallet as the decryption key. And so th- that's quite common. We have apps like R Drive and Accord, both of which do this secret files on Arweave, despite the fact that it's a public chain. And I guess the, in the world of social, you are generally doing, generally putting up things that you actually want to be public and to be stored. Obviously, there's this whole question as to what do you and don't you want to store? And there's just this big indicator, I think, from the social world with the rise of Snapchat of many years ago, that some people want the exact opposite of permanent storage. They want ephemeral goes away after five seconds storage. And so it's where does that kind of leave permanent social? I think it probably leaves it more in the realm of DAOs and governance and things which are kind of there to, should be there to stay. As I was making a reference previously to governance forum or whatever, and you said that you may be accused of being a reckless super mod plus something like this censorship Petty agent. tyrant <laughs> yeah 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 there are two different sides of it right i know i certainly would like to kind of have deleted accounts and tweet and everything like that in the past but also perhaps if it becomes a norm you should be accountable for what you say <laughs> forever it depends on the context right i'm even starting to see just like chats between friends like telegram and whatsapp that message is self-destruct. You know, yep. you're talking shit and then you don't want that to be there. In fact, a friend from Venezuela just messaged me because he saw my photos in Colombia. And I read our conversation, like last time we spoke in 2017. And I was like, before I replied, I just deleted the whole thing. <laughs> I was like, holy shit, things have changed a lot. And it's not even something bad. It's just that even if you think of human memory, we don't remember everything. Our brain has some weird algorithm whereby we selectively choose things to remember or not remember. Even some people may store trauma in weird ways. Whatever the complexity there is, we know that not all information is important. And I like that you have the permanence or the resilience to stop somebody else from enabling you to express yourself or from somebody else from deleting you. But I also like the notion of potentially putting the power back in the user and saying, okay, I can delete myself. No one else can, but I potentially could. You can't make a blockchain reversible, I don't think, at least not without compromising security for other things like payments. It doesn't have to be reversible. What if when the content goes out, it is encrypted. You have mm-hmm. keys, you can make the keys. And then after a certain amount of time, there's just a key swap and it burns the private keys. Yeah, that'd be I, cool. Yeah, well, it was encrypted by default and then decrypted on the client side. And then you could revoke that somehow. I guess by whatever object is doing the client side decryption, you'd have a lot more control over it than that. Yeah. Yes. Although I guess 
recently I've been trying to grab my head. This is a big brain shit on the earth that I've been around for 18 months and I'm still like, oh, monkey learn, monkey see, monkey touch. So on Nier, you can actually issue extra sets of full access private keys and then delete your current ones. And I think that's how some of the applications such as Nier names and key pump work in the sense that they create the account, they never reveal the private keys to the creator. And then when you take over the account, it gives you a new set of private keys that you have access to. And then it deletes yes, the old ones. Yeah, I think this is near specific behavior. It's Big green shit. Yeah, it is. It's wild. But yeah, there you go. If anyone listening thinks that this makes sense and you want to work on it, there are hackathons everywhere you can point your finger at. I think this is a winning idea. <laughs> yeah. So how did you get into the near ecosystem? That's something I'm curious about. You said you've been here 18 months. That may be about as long as I've been noticing near. I was a theory in my early days. So towards the very end of my university studies, I knew I didn't want to do a law. And very lucky for me, there was a blockchain center in my city. It was a co-working space, open door policy. I didn't have any, literally any money at the time. So I was just hosting meetups. It was like talk and trade Mondays and pizza Wednesdays and we had a handful of early Ethereum people. Like I, I remember crystal clear, clear, somebody was like, buy Ethereum, sell your house, sell your kidneys, buy Ethereum. And I missed an initial mini pump from like four bucks to 16 bucks. And I was like, oh, damn, I think I missed it. I'm fucked. <laughs> no, you haven't missed shit. Just buy Ethereum. And uh, yeah, it was really interesting because the issue that I keep having in crypto is my common sense or logic I see something that may not work, but there is enough hype and momentum in the right now that people like ignore that. CryptoKitties broke Ethereum in 2017. Right. And I was like, if CryptoKitties broke Ethereum, this isn't really going to go anywhere. Sure, the wave from 16 bucks to 1200 I bought a fucking mining operation in Venezuela. Up until recently, my mom was still mining. <laughs> and once again, I was like, yeah, sure. Ethereum one day will be proof of stake. It was five years delayed. I was very excited and I bought into the core primitives of the cypherpunks of decentralizing mm -hmm. a bunch of structures that are corrupt. I was just a bit disillusioned that it couldn't scale. Right. Around the rollups. Early 2020, when new scaling solutions start entering the scene, I start doing some research and if you assume that the scalability problem can be solved, which seems like there will be several competing solutions that get there with different methods, the next mile is user experience. Can you build a product that actually has enough demand? And that is a super interesting proposition because if you think about it, if I tell you that the capacity for a venue is four people and you tell me that the venue sells out every night, Technically, that venue is a raging success, but when I give you a stadium the next day that holds 100,000 people, you have a problem because it's not the same show to fill out a four-person venue than a 100,000-person venue. And yeah. that is a big gap that we have now because crypto, to be perfectly honest, hasn't grown that much. The builders are the same builders. Most of them are at the core protocol layer or playing with the primitives to see how to push the envelope. Decent land is probably a good example, tackling that cross-chain identity layer. And this is the really good point I claimed I had. The real question is, what are the applications that can reach a ton of people that require those primitives? 
So in the case of Decent Plant, I was thinking, and this is a problem that is strong to my heart, could this way of ascertaining your identity in multiple blockchains be used as an interface that your traditional physical banks identify? So you can actually vouch for your assets. Dude, it's bizarre yeah. now. Like yeah. I can buy a house in cash, but it wouldn't give me a mortgage. Digital mm -hmm. nomad visa. You can buy a, a, the golden visa, like buying real estate, but they won't recognize your monthly income, which is, uh, I think the requirement for Colombia is 100 bucks. Like it's right. crazy that we created crypto to transcend the traditional finance world and bank people that didn't have access to it. And now it's the other institutions that rely in that shitty banking system to prove that you have money's money. strikes a nerve. I was literally applying for a mortgage today and found that I can't, can't get it because I'm technically an expat now. I lived abroad out in the UK for quite a while. And now my credit history, basically, I don't exist as far as the UK is concerned. I don't really know what that is. But yes, I'm going. That to is this. amazing. Does that mean you don't pay tax? See, not in England. that not is like when yeah. you realize you're getting fucked. I'm the same in Australia. I, for 15 years, paid tax, had focal access to anything. And now that I've left, they won't give me anything because they can't ascertain that I make money. Or they're also yes. bending me over with the taxes regardless mm. of where I live in the world or for how long I've, the system is yeah. definitely stacked against you. Yeah, oh, definitely. What you were saying about the reputation or attestation of anything or attestation of, you know, these are the 20 different wallets that I own on different chains all, all together. And this is my, my one master wallet or ID that you can check that by. That, that's definitely possible with, with ARC protocol. Something like an on-chain reputation score also in a social environment, you could be verified above a certain threshold. Different apps could set different thresholds for that. It could be one big part of it could be you've got to have a year of transaction history on Ethereum. Maybe you've got to have done this and that on, on, on a chain. And it makes it very difficult to Sybil attack or something like that, because I personally couldn't set up more than a couple of sock puppet accounts that have a significantly rich amount of history on them to build a high enough score to look like a real person. I mean, I've got dozens of wallets and I'm all over the place and none of them actually have enough like mainline activity for me to be able to Sybil attack something like that. You and I should target one bank, hopefully in the same jurisdiction. I reckon Singapore is good because Singapore can give you loans for Australia and I'm sure for the UK as well. Ah, really? Let's get that working relationship going. I don't know what's going to happen with the property market. Definitely not financial advice, but I would like to stop living out of a suitcase someday. <laughs> yeah. I've been traveling for seven months and I'm technically homeless. Digital nomad um, sounds better, you know, but I'm technically homeless. <laughs> that's what digital nomad means, right? <laughs> Basically, it's a homeless yoga movement. But no, to your point, it's fascinating how once you start giving it specific concrete examples, it becomes more and more obvious. Like, for instance, my account, well, the main one that I use publicly, Alejandro Zutnir mm -hmm. created that in January 2020. It's actually super interesting to listen to Ilya talk about this because from that account, you can actually map out every single transaction and do a social graph. You could technically actually create a credit assessment risk just based on all the actions that I've taken. Which transactions have I engaged with? For instance, super simple example. If I've received payments from the New York Foundation wallets, that would be a somehow more selected group of people. 
and presumably yes. they have a different profile. If I've staked, how long I've staked, if I've been liquidated from borrowed cash, which sadly I am. Diamond hands, I'm not selling. You fucking liquidate me. I'm not selling. <laughs> it's super interesting how not only could we use a protocol like Decent Land to be able to prove your online presence to the banks, it could actually even start to provide them with a much more detailed and granular sense of who you are. It's not just the assets that you have or how much income you have, but everything. Do you hold power in DAOs? Do you? I'm sure that there's a thousand variables that people can think of. So that's where I get excited. Yeah, I think it's especially important for the, just, just the fact that if you're a DAO contributor, you're, it's almost like money laundering to move that into the real world. If your full-time job is getting paid in ETH, or some various contributions at all kinds of different DAOs. That's not transmissible to the real world in any kind of meaningful way that could give you credit or could give you any kind of attestation of trust from, from anywhere. It would Benjamin? Illegal. <laughs> this is not legal, financial, medical, or any kind of advice. If you listen for long enough, I have a disclaimer at the end of the podcast as well. There are ways of doing it. I guess it depends on the arrangement very much. The way that the marketing DAO works is once the DAO approves, you still send a request to the foundation and you mm -hmm. sign the rewards agreement. So there's a paper trail for some of my other gigs that I do because I live in the gig economy. That's a very millennial of me. I send invoices from my Australian company. I use that request network. So it's super cool. The invoice is actually on chain and it's marked as paid when they paid me with USDC on Ethereum. So it's still crypto. And it's a bit of a hybrid to try to have the paper trail. Once again, it's super hard to prove that you have an incomer until tax time comes. And they start <laughs> lifting rocks and chasing pennies. And suddenly you are the Bill Gates of crypto. And it's what the fuck? Mm. You've denied me my citizenship yeah. rights all year long. And suddenly I'm worthy of tax. I owe you. <laughs> yes. But yeah. also... I'm curious, where were you living before going back to the UK? I lived in Latvia for five years. Then I lived a year in the Netherlands. What were you doing in Latvia? That's amazing. So I moved to London after for university. And then at university, I met who would become my wife, who is Latvian. And then after university, it was like, let's actually go to Latvia. The cost of living is like a fifth of what it costs to live in London. We just thought you know, this is a good way to make savings. We work remotely anyway. And so we lived in Latvia for a good few years. Then with it being in Eastern Europe, bordering Russia, when the Ukraine, when we got a whiff of that, she said, we need to get out of here. And we just had a little daughter at the time and didn't want to get stuck in Latvia in case any were like shit went down. So we went really rapidly to the Netherlands to sort out the visa shit. Uh -huh. yep. well, congratulations on statistically, it's actually quite unlikely that you'll find yourself a, a lovely other from Latvia because there's only six of them. It just panned out. Two of my best friends in Australia are from Latvia. I had the joy and the pleasure to visit. I went everywhere from Vienna all the way to St. Petersburg. My okay. boss. Did you go through Riga for that? Yeah, I yeah. went up through and then three Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and then I wish I could describe the face of the immigration official at the Russian border <laughs> as I'm going in at midnight by bus. It's me and like all Russians. Oh, they were okay. just 
I don't speak Russian, but I could see their face, lips, and like body language. Pretty sure, you know, this big, strong lady, she picks up my passport and she shouts to the person across the, like over my shoulder, like the other cubicle. She's what the fuck is this? Like Venezuela, is this like a real passport? Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, this is the wildest shit. Oh, so this is two weeks before the Olympics. And it was a great time to go because they had a visa holiday. Visa holiday, if you go to the World Cup, no one needs a visa. I am part of the axis of evil. With my Venezuelan passport, I didn't even a visa regardless. But it was also funny that it was probably the first time they saw me just one passport. No, no, and they no, were I like, oh, fuck it. You're in. Pretty insular over there. I was a bit of an oddity in Latvia as well. I got a residency permit after quite a lot of struggle. But now that England left the EU, it means that I have residency in EU and also can live in England and manage to get the best of both worlds. Although the visa stuff was an absolute fucking pain. We didn't live in the Netherlands for a year out of choice. It was it was super expensive. And yeah, and really we were just waiting for the visa to get approved and for us to be able to land in England again, because we went to England first. And then they said, actually, you can't apply if you're in England, so you've got to get out now. <laughs> and so we did after five days, just took the ferry and the closest ferry port was Rotterdam. So it's okay. We're in Rotterdam now for as long as this takes. And it ended up taking about a year. That's yes. crazy. Clearly you guys enjoy the cold quite a lot. Portugal probably wasn't that far off and it's quite affordable and the weather is beautiful. Yeah, that yeah, was a bit of a mess actually. But yeah, no, the cold's actually really striking in Latvia compared to England. It's almost spring now in England. It's I mean, a sunny day yesterday. It's still like thick snow in Latvia, which is, I think Latvia's got the same, mm, uh, is it latitude, the one that goes across? Maybe. Anyway, it's on the same across lines as Alaska. So it's got a pretty similar climate. When I was in Lithuania, I mean, it was technically the same for all three of the Baltic states. I really liked Lithuania. I loved it. And I was speaking with some local friends I made and I was like, you know what? I am this close to just like moving to Lithuania. I'm going to find out. Mm. And they were like, let me explain something to you. We get 33 days of sun a year. <laughs> and you've been here for four of them. And I was like, back, it's time to get out. Yeah, oh yeah, it's like top of the year is just like winds. To be honest, I wouldn't mind to get outside of my comfort zone to live like a proper intense winter, like up north. I mm -hmm. originally was thinking Ukraine because there's just a lot of people from Ukraine in the near ecosystem and mm -hmm. I thought it could be good networks there. Things have changed, but yeah, it's it's interesting how the weather can have that impact on you. It's interesting you mentioned a lot of Ukrainian near users. It seems like there's a lot of like concentrated regions that you would not maybe necessarily find as hubs in other ecosystems that are very near focused. I don't really know about a say more. Which one of them is in? There's there's uh, I can't remember, I can't remember how many are, but it's you know near India, near Vietnam, near Ukraine, as you said, and there's uh, actually quite a lot of Eastern Europe hubs as well. I wonder where, why, if you have any insight as to why it's popular in regional hubs, is this an, a conscious effort from the near foundation at the beginning to seed these small communities? I would be hard pressed to say that anything that has been going on has been a concerted effort. <laughs> but yeah, there's two theories that I think could get some support behind them. 
One is, and I actually asked this back in the day because there's a very unique profile of, say, Russians or Eastern Europeans, Far East especially, that make it to Australia and to be very academic, very into hard sciences. And what I was explained is that because they had communism for so long, one of the one of the core features is that you really start to manipulate the social sciences. You change the meaning of words and you mm-hmm. just reinvent history. Like nothing that you can say, nothing that is man-made is real or true. Things always adapt to an agenda and a superior goal. Mm-hmm. So the people that were smart and didn't want to die all stayed as far away as they could from the social sciences. Just don't touch any of that. And they all went hard into the hard sciences, physics, maths. And lo and behold, once you have a really well-educated population of all these hardcore mathematicians and shit, there's still no jobs in the region. Yeah. So then they start to look for opportunities elsewhere. And these are interesting trends because even in the modern day world, you may say that even if the conditions are not as extreme, the fact that you can work remotely and export your skills as a developer or anything on the internet, you're still making a much better living. So it's an interesting web of like historical things. As for other regions... It probably has a lot to do with what got me into Nier in the first time. I know that we started the story and it ended. And it's around the cost of using the network. It's always been a little bit upsetting to see Ethereum as like a playground for people that got involved seven years ago and have a shit ton of money. No one pays. Dude, you order Uber Eats. If the fee is more than four bucks, you don't order the food. You're like, no, fuck that. I'm not paying a $4 fee. And there's like a human bringing you food to your door. You could argue there's value in that, depending how hungry you are, how hungry, yeah. whatever. Ethereum fees are insane. Even now they're like, you know, five or possibly more. I think I paid eight or seven or five, five, between five and seven dollars, like something recently. And it's not even a bull market. And back in the bull market, absolutely ridiculous. It was like a hundred dollars or something for a swap on a DEX. Dude, I deposited money into Compound. Idiot. I was earning like a patent percentage. I don't even know what the fuck I deposited. It may have been some stable coins or some Ethereum. I thought it was like, oh, it's like a savings account. My crypto is now generating more money. The fee to withdraw the money back out was like three times what I had deposited. <laughs> and I'm like, I guess I just donated that to the protocol. Like, in fact, yep. that is when it clicked for me for a year. I asked James Wall, this is early, early, early days. I asked James Wall if there was ever going to be a possibility for, say, Avi to deploy on near, or I guess Aurora now, and for me to be able to pay off my loan on Avi Ethereum through a transaction on near native or Aurora. Okay. So basically, the state sinks. Mm. Well, the answer was no. Right now, no. But it is in the roadmap for there oh, to be wow. first light clients. Technically, the light client is there because that's what they use for the Rainbow Bridge. But the, it is in the roadmap to deploy full clients. You could nuke the entire near networks. All the validators somehow get destroyed. 
you won't lose that information because it's all validated on Ethereum and vice versa. Ethereum could get nuked and the entire network is on the near side. So near technically crazy. and actually becomes Ethereum 2.0. Yeah. Aurora, I read, I think it was the founder of Aurora put out an interesting... Shevchenko? Yes. Put out an interesting kind of angle as to Ethereum. Ethereum is like an L2 on Nia <laughs> via Aurora or some like crazy mental gymnastics involved to come up with that. But I read the argument and you can't really deny it in that way. But what were you saying about the state sync being actually like one-to-one between Nia or between Aurora and ETH? So like the address space would be the same and the transaction validity would be the same across both chains. That sounds crazy. The way to sidestep the gas. It is crazy. Yeah. So so the, if you think of validators, I'm hundred percent butchering this. I know that there are people that know what I'm talking about listening to this. Please reach out. Of anyone with Pagoda, I'm trying to get Ilya. The thing is that my requirements for Ilya is I want an hour and a half of his time. I don't mm. give a shit if I have to jump on a plane, if I have to go to like his hotel room in the bathroom, like I need an hour and a half of his time. Cause yeah, several times he's offered me like, yeah, I'm walking uh, 20 minutes away. Do you want to just go? And I was like, we've shared taxes together, but it's, I need time for the podcast to, to unfold itself. Yes. So anyway, the peasant's explanation is. I think in the same way that all validators reach consensus on the current state of the network, you can do that with a full client elsewhere. So technically you bundle the current state of the network mm-hmm. and you attest it on the other side so that even if your actual validators were to disappear, it's all been documented, stamped elsewhere. I'm actually wondering, because the state of rollups and L2s and Ethereum has evolved a fair bit since I spoke with James Wall, but it's probably very similar to what happens at that layer. It probably is. Yeah, it sounds like it is. Yeah. Yeah. So the L2 would have its own validators. They do everything and then they stamp on the ETH mainnet. And you asked me about rollups before, and I didn't want to go into it because I'm not extremely deep on the technology, but Shevchenko is fascinating talking about this topic. I, I saw him in DevCon re- recently in Bogota and he was like, dude, I can make you famous. I can give you all the talking points. I can give you, you just can't refute that there just isn't a good alternative out there. I'm going to skip saying names because I may be confusing them and butchering the explanation, but he was, dude, this one, hype, excitement, TVL, you have 10 days to challenge a transaction. I think that's optimism. No. There is absolutely no way you can yeah. have an efficient DeFi model where there is no finality for a transaction for 10 days. Yeah, I think it, that's the withdrawal period, isn't it? Like when someone issues a withdrawal, then all the transactions are able to be contested. And if they are, then that 10 day window for the withdrawal off of the chain onto Ethereum mainnet can then be invalidated or not. Yeah. And if there's one thing that we've learned from the Luna collapse or the FTX collapse, is it you only need one big black swan event for the whole shit to collapse. Who is to say that there isn't a sophisticated attack on optimism? There's 10 days to challenge. Doesn't fucking matter after a few days, money is gone or who knows what kind of damage a malicious actor could create. Even Alex was explaining about 
all these L2s are pipe dreams because the validators on Ethereum mainnet can censor you. Mm. They can just reject your transaction. And it's, is it decentralized? Is it? Th there's many nuances that need addressing. It doesn't help. That's a bit technical. I'm trying to grasp my own head around it. I'll try to find the website that he gave me where it's a really good analysis and comparison of all these mm -hmm. blockchains and put it on the show notes. But I guess you bring it back to decent plan. I'm assuming that technically you guys don't care as in your environment neutral, wherever the users may be for as long as these blockchains survive. There is an identity need to be met. Is that correct? Yes. I'd say we, we pretty much are just choosing what works, where it works. Marweave is the best storage chain. We really very much liked Nier for its user friendliness, especially in the social context. Like we thought that really worked because of the way where you can allocate a certain amount of Nier that is automatically allowed to be spent by the protocol without having to sign and sign again. Like every time if you were to do a reply or a like or micro interactions, there'd be an absolute headache on a, on a chain like an EVM based chain where you were, it requires a signature for every damn thing you do. And this is actually like the case with, if you don't know if you lens protocol, Lens is, it sidestepped that by basically adding a centralized node, like a relay node. That's the limitations with the tech stack they chose. They, they're building this on, on, on Polygon, which doesn't naturally have this uh, great thing that Nier does, where you can do a bunch of interactions and only actually have to sign the first one up until you reach a certain allocation of your gas money on Nier, basically. So I thought Nier, Nier makes sense. That plus the lightning fast web to like UX of Nier made sense for like the actual social layer where you do your interacting, where the contract that holds the likes and the follows and the post IDs, the posts themselves are stored on Arweave. So that that's like yet to be rolled out, but that's a social layer that combines Nier and Arweave and your identities from all your other different chains on one. So. When it comes to like where, which ecosystem you're from and where your identity lives, we don't care, but we do care about stacks that we choose to build on or mainly near enough just because you get like the best part of two specialized chains. It's like the Linux philosophy. If you know much about how Linux is built, generally it's like very compartmentalized into tools that do one thing only and they can do it well and they're very composable. It's not a monolithic operating system and none of the tools in the user space either are monolithic at all. It, it's sacrilegious to, to have a tool that does more than one thing in the Linux world. It should just be very basic, interoperable with other things and just do that thing very well and be very well documented. And that, that's you kind know, of my approach to things as well. I love it. What came to mind, which is maybe super weird, Tails. Tails, the USB, yeah, the <laughs> USB OS for, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so back in the day, 2017, this was like pre the first bull run. I was fucking around with Bitcoin and I installed Tails. And back in the day, it was like from your computer into a USB and then from the USB into another USB. It's pretty hardcore. But what was interesting about Tails, and there are so many parallels with Web3, is that, I guess for context, Tails is a hardcore privacy operating system can't be tracked after each session everything gets wiped it's got a bunch of like hardcore encrypted stuff what's interesting about tails is that it only optimizes for one thing being anonymous online you open it and it's like being on a bad movie from like the early 2000s 
Yes. Everything is pixelated. It's like the most basic application of the most basic tools, like email client, chunky browser. Like it's not there to be used as a smooth, amazing, seamless experience. It's there to whistle, blow some major shit and then yeah. disappear because they're going to fucking kill you. I'm wondering right. where in Web3 we may have started a lot of those lines. It's like, nah, you know, Ethereum can't demarch, it's expensive, it's clunky, but we're bringing down Wall Street. And when do we start to transition from now that we can reinvent the web, we may need a blockchain operating system. Mm. I may have told, I replied to one of Ilya's posts because he said, I'm going to be at Near Denver talking about boss. And he's like, if you don't know what it is, come check out the talk. And I replied, balls of steel. <laughs> no one liked it. It's a bit embarrassing, actually. But no, no, the point is, is Near has a really good positioning on that blockchain operating, what was it I say? Blockchain operating stack? Operating system. Blockchain operating system positioning which kind of keeps bringing us back to the question of how did I discover Nier and why Nier? And that's something that I've struggled with a little bit because mostly NFT projects, but when people say they're going multi-chain, there's usually a lot of nuance. And I'd love to see what you think about this because by definition, the area in which you operate is multi-chain. There are people that claim that they're going multi-chain, which actually means I'm going to another chain. <laughs> I cannot take with me what I left behind, but the reality is my focus is now elsewhere. I don't want to be too judgmental, but it is usually correlated with hype and money. Yeah, no, fragmented through. Like, I think what the, there was a phase where it may have been people were going multi-chain from Solana to Nia, right? And then they went multi-chain from Nia to Aptos or similar. I noticed that kind of trend happened a lot. It really doesn't mean going multi-chain, you're right. But the other side of being multi-chain is super interesting. And some may say it is equally sneaky. The only difference being that it actually benefits us. And by us, I mean the broader near ecosystem. If you believe that whichever blockchain offers the best developer experience, whichever blockchain offers the best user experience as far as being able to create end user applications, then it wouldn't be outrageous to think that over time, more and more things are going to converge on that blockchain. So what I've seen about Near, and maybe we're not super loud or super strategic with the messaging, but a clear messaging has always been, we're not an Ethereum killer. We believe in a multi-chain world. We have bridges everywhere. Is there a sneaky belief down the end that the flows are more likely to come into Near than out of Near? Statistically, it's inevitable because there's nothing in Near. Much that can live at the moment. But yeah. things coming into near, and once again, this brings us back to the Sentland. A huge barrier for switching operators is what happens to all my stuff that I've already have. If you move countries, you left back your credit rating in presumably in the UK first, and now in Latvia, and now you are homeless. <laughs> yeah. By the way, I was about to invite you to a polycule in Panama before. <laughs> It's, it's a great tax territory. You're absolutely right. There's almost a disincentive from starting life over on a new chain just because you wipe your reputation clean. If the chain that you're starting on is niche, you might not be able to carry that reputation with you from anywhere else either to anywhere else. As far as I know, 
ARC protocol from Decent Land is pretty much the only thing that makes that connection for identities possible between non-EVM chains and EVM chains together. And are we, but definitely are we, are we so niche that no one, definitely no one has built that. Wow. But yes, I think we can start to see this kind of multi-chain reputation system, like we were talking about previously, become possible and maybe for it to actually enable people to not build because of where everyone already is, but to build because of what is tooling like and what the, can the tooling do, because you know that the, I guess the network effect from the ecosystems that are bigger can still be carried over because you can still use those assets in effect to prove you own them, to token vote on a chain where the token was not minted, etc. We, we think Astro DAO is really great. Sputnik DAO is a really great, pretty good piece of DAO tooling, actually quite a lot better than other stuff that we've used on other chains. And so we would want to make it so that you can token vote using something minted on optimism or an NFT on another thing, actually prove it to Astro DAO and use that as your voting, as your voting platform, instead of having to use the one that's on the chain that you're on, which might be shit. Very likely. I think it makes sense at this stage to go for the crypto native primitives, like who is already in Web3 and yeah. what are the existing low hanging fruit to bind them together. But I'm getting really excited of thinking and many examples come to mind of instances in the real world that could benefit from removing the friction of being able to prove your identity across protocols. The first one that comes to mind is Facebook knew from day one that the number one barrier for people leaving was that all their shit was in Facebook. In fact, I'm pretty sure it was mandated by law. But when they enabled users to download all their data, they give it to you in a format that is basically unusable. On purpose. It is so distorted and hard to navigate that you couldn't really take that with you elsewhere or it would mm. probably take some special tooling to enable that. In fact, you know what I'd love to see? Some crazy motherfucker creating a vault on Arweave to enable people to download their data from Facebook, dump that shit on Arweave and be able to map one-to-one. -one. Could that's be a decade worth of social data. So that's a great hackathon idea. I think we're winning. I'm not really seeing this shit until we get a team together. Yeah, it's such a big problem, isn't it? The, the incumbents, which own your data, are completely disincentivized from making it easy to be portable. Even if they're mandated by law to do it, they're going to make it basically useless. Like you said, like, I think I downloaded one of those and it was like, a, just a bunch of like parts of text files that was all like disjointed and impossible to actually do anything with. And it's very much on purpose. And the same with exporting your Twitter data. If you've ever tried to download a Twitter space, it comes in a .ts file, which no one ever uses and is not even a thing, but it's basically just a, an MP3 file with a different ex file extension on the end. I don't know why they do it. They make things proprietary just simply to make it more awkward and to disincentivize you from doing the things, from owning your data and from doing the things that you should be able to do. And Twitter is another one because it shut down its API almost entirely. You used to be able to use third-party clients with it. You used to be able to post to it from the terminal using cool apps, make bots and stuff like this. It, was, it used to be really fun back in 2015 or something. Then they realized if we make it too interoperable, we could get outcompeted by people building things using our tools and we won't have control over them. So they just shut it all down. This is just like the common pattern with everything. Moving away from composability to concentrate power. But the core issue there is that you own shares in Twitter, you may not own shares in the competitor, and it's mm -hmm. a zero-sum game. At least if you have 
or if you share my thesis of the layer one, you don't really care which app or which protocol on top of that layer one is successful because the entire network captures the value and the benefit. Yeah. And if a particular layer one wins out, it's like owning share, owning tokens of that is like owning shares in the internet itself from the big brain. I was really fascinated by Ampleforth. In fact, Ampleforth was what reignited my crypto interest in early 2020. Because the way that they do it, it's, it was the first of a rebasing tokens movement. And since then, it's just been an epic scam fest. Rug fest. But what I really liked about it is that Ampleforth, that it had a white paper and a red book. The way that they explained some economic concepts and some issues that we've had with it historically was fascinating. They basically explained, look, traditionally, when the government prints money, it dilutes everyone, but the new money goes specifically to some people. And the game is just stacked against the majority, and it's very opaque. And what I liked about Ampleforth was that if technically the ecosystem grew, like there was more money going into Ampleforth, you technically had to buy AMP. You couldn't print it. The price goes above $1. New AMPs are released, but they're distributed evenly across every holder. You can see an instance where, say you have a, an economy and the GDP is growing 10% per year. Everyone's holdings are growing 10% per year. It's not like GDP grew 10% per year. Three companies took 90% of the profit and they paid no tax. Yeah. It, it was fascinating to me how you were able to distribute or capture value in a collective way. The problem with AMP, and this is why human behavioral science is probably one of my passions at the moment. The same is true when the economy is shrinking. GDP decreases by 10%. Everyone's holdings decrease by 10%. It's not, oh, Jeff Bezos lost 40 billion. I lost my job and you lost your house. Like, at the moment, we have a very real problem in aligning incentives in an economy. The truth is some people are paying more, some are paying less, some are deprived of opportunities. It's very challenging, but Apple Forest created a simple system whereby at least if there was buying, you were all in it together. People didn't like the losing money of it and maybe not everyone read the white paper and the red paper like I did. But the point is, you can create similar economies at the L1 layer. And the interesting thing is that not only can everyone capture value if the pie is growing, like there's more things in layer one, but you can actually unlock more and more value and more unique forms of value with composability. Yes. So before yes. you had Facebook, and the example I always give to people is, imagine all the startups that we would have if the fuckers at Facebook had basically created an open API for anyone to plug into the massive troves of data that they have. Would have been pretty wild. Probably ChatGPT 10 years earlier and dating and breeding sorted forever. Who knows? Crazy, scary stuff. Yeah, I mean, that's totally misaligned with their incentives. And that's the sad thing, isn't it? It's like only really in this sort of economy where we have at scale layer ones, where, you know, the protocols themselves can earn from being on them. That's another thing about Nier, isn't it? The smart contract deployer gets a share of the gas that's spent on that as well. So it's like your own smart contract. It's like your own miniature business model on top of the maybe more abstract idea that buying tokens of a growing network is going to eventually pay off. I mean, that doesn't necessarily always work. Yeah, there are some 
interesting, perhaps misconceptions or different perceptions of what the word tokenomics mean. I get a bit frustrated when people say the word tokenomics and they're just explaining to you how the token is distributed. And I'm like, there's a flow missing here. Like there's usually a cycle, almost like the rain cycle. Temperature, evaporation, condensation, fall, and the cycle repeats. In near, the tokenomics are super interesting. So the supply starts at 1 billion. There is a fixed 5% inflation per year. Those new tokens, 90% go to validators. Anyone can stake and earn a share of those new tokens. And the remaining 10% goes to a community treasury. So there's actually a replenishing fund now at the foundation level and presumably soon at the NDC, at community treasury. And for people performing transactions and smart contracts, 70% of the fees get burned and 30% go to the smart contract creator. So you can see how you're starting to align incentives so that the more activity on chain, the better, because you both reduce the supply, you pay the smart contract issuer and you don't dilute people through the new issuance. You're replenishing the funds to be able to support initiatives. And yeah, I've seen some projections, something like 1 billion transactions a day, it becomes deflationary. Becomes, oh, really? Oh, Those projections are actually not super accurate because they're estimated, I think I have to double check, but there's a lot of nuance, right? Some people calculate deflation based on the total supply. Some people calculate deflation just on the circulating supply. Because for instance, if there's, at the moment, there's 50% of near locked in in validators, does it count or does it not count? But also the other key thing is that different types of transactions consume different amounts of gas. And these calculations were done with a simple NEP transfer, Mm -hmm. just like the cheapest one. There's also been some conversations around the developer circles around increasing the price of gas, because realistically, the smart contract is not really making any money for the developers, at least not with the current volumes and the current prices. So probably a really cool feature about Nier that it is upgradable and there's increasingly steps for involving more developers into that governance. Have you guys been involved much on that front? No, actually, no. I remember when the Nier Foundation was just starting its decentralization journey. I went to the very first meeting, but it seemed like I'd missed an awful lot of context and I've already definitely had, and there was already a lot of planning that had already happened, even though it was like the first meeting and it caught me off, but no, I've not been directly involved in any kind of governance or anything, but I'm definitely an avid reader of the governance forums. That's very interesting to me. I think. I am worried about your mental health. (laughs) Now, the reason why I really like decent land and I do not publish as many podcasts as I'd like, and I don't have anyone on because I can't be fuck talking to strangers for two hours. But the reason why I really like Decent Plant is because I think we have a really dire need for reputation. A lot of the issues that we're having now around governance, around distribution of funds, around everything, it's that people are making the mistake of assuming that decentralized means flat hierarchy Mm. and that an A known account on the forum that joined three days ago has the same standing or the same weight that a core engineer that has been working on the protocol since Genesis block. And 
while I fully embrace and support people to go pseudonymous and I may or may not have my own pseudonymous accounts so that I can sometimes express myself more freely because I am a marketing doubt counsel. The whole point is we need to be able to capture and recognize people's contributions in a more meaningful way. And a very big part of the puzzle is there's going to be a lot of people coming from other ecosystems. How can we make sure that it is not a deterrent that they may have had the recognition in the Terra ecosystem, for instance, Yeah, goes on fire and then they have to start from scratch in year. That was extremely frustrating. Overall, it all keeps coming back to identity, portability. Yeah. The technology is there. We are able to do this with our protocol. We would be able to attest to identities from anywhere. The single hurdle now is getting the tools in the hands of developers and getting partnerships with dApps that need this. So AstroDAO is a good path forward. We want to be a on-chain social layer on top of AstroDAO. This would effectively compete, I think, with the near governance forum almost in, in that sense. Once you've done that and it's actually on-chain rather than just a username, password sign up, then you can obviously do all kinds of crazy things with it and leverage identity in a provable way and things like that. But even in the awkward middle stages there, it would be possible, given an ARC protocol integration with the near governance forums, to be able to at least display on the UR what someone else's addresses are, what their score might be, if we come up with a good algorithm for determining that. I don't know if I should tell people, but admins on the forum can see your IP. Oh, IP. In fact, forums are so used to trolls that you can do an IP search across the forum. Dude, I am getting very tired of this bullshit and I'm sending screenshots daily. They're having an offsite right now, but I'm sending screenshots daily to the moderators. Hey, these accounts are just deranged posting all sorts of crazy stuff. You do an IP lookup, it's the same person. So I think that once again, I embrace anonymity as long as you're not being destructive. In which, because A, Charissa, and I was explaining this to some of the NDC people today. A's attract A's, B's attracts B's and C's. And it is possible to see in ecosystems how friendly, great performing, ambitious people attract like-minded people. That's how the cypherpunk started, a very self-selective small group. I think we may have touched on it indirectly about the origins of our weave. And I've also seen how communities just get eaten alive because bad actors attract other bad actors and it's just a disaster. So I'm really excited about having a protocol like Decent Land. There's a few things that I'm wondering. The first one is, where do you see near social fitting into the picture? Yeah, I actually have done criminally little research on near social. Back when was this? I think it was maybe like beginning of the last autumn it was just coming out i heard about it and played with it and i think that it has developed an awful lot since then but back then it was quite bare bones and i didn't really understand it and yes i thought I, i'm not sure what i'm supposed to glean from this and i have not revisited it since i would encourage you to check it out i had the same experience as you actually the first time i was seeing a lot of buzz in the ecosystem and i want you to check it out and i think at the time it was literally like json code and i was like what the fuck is this yeah but it has evolved a lot it is starting to resemble like an early days facebook you can poke people you can follow people there is a feed and 
What is interesting about it is there is a social component, but my understanding is that the real angle or the real play is more having a decentralized front end. So anyone has the ability to create a widget, which is basically a way to access an application or a smart contract through near social. Mm-hmm. Have they want identity or perhaps they want front end, so to speak, and then through that access many applications. So an example that some people have given me is you could technically view your positions and maybe even perform transactions on borrow cash without having to go to borrow cash. So you have wow. the front end application, you have CLI. This decentralized front end would be somewhere in the middle. It's like a custom dashboard for all the stuff that you might want to action through for a UI on Nia. Something cool. like that. Yeah. Yeah. With the Nia has got a very great identity system built in with the dot near addresses, which I think, you know, that was a super smart play. We also love that a decent line, how it's just a, a built-in friendly name already. But as you say, bringing more people in from more ecosystems, maybe we should explore with near social managing that multi-chain reputation side of things there, especially if it's getting more social features. And I assume it would have some kind of AstroDAO integration as well, then we could probably integrate Arc there, which could then possibly transform to be the governance forum. Now, it's quite interesting talking to you about it because you've got your own take on the governance forum and you're in it very heavily. Some things frustrate you, some things you probably wish that you were to retain the power to do, such as deleting things. I suppose deleting things is probably, depending on who's doing it and the discretion that you use, it probably can be healthy. But I think that when governance is being discussed, there probably shouldn't be any censorship. Maybe there should be down votes and things like that to just hide crap. But yeah, off on a tangent. But yeah, it would actually be interesting to have another discussion about how you very much down on the ground with a governance forum, getting getting on. What do you want? What is missing? What could be Web3 integrated? What should stay Web2, et cetera? I think we want to save that for another time. When you look at society as a whole, there are interesting patterns, but there's also things that we've literally never done before. So even if you look at the concept of countries and cities and houses, we're actually in a very natural, intrinsic way driven to be private. We have doors and windows and we call the police on anyone that breaks into your house. And even the concept of a family where technically you're bound together by blood or whatever. Most families are dysfunctional. Some people opt to tap out of a group of people that just doesn't enable them to do or be or whatever the case may be. So the challenge is, how can we reconcile some of these concepts? And by the way, I don't think that all of these concepts are right. Some of them may actually be counterproductive to cooperation. But how can we reconcile them in a first, a digital world? where technically everything is together. And then secondly, in a digital, permissionless, immutable world. This is beyond my generation. A while ago now already, I was at uni. I was hearing some awful stories about bullying. Like in my day, you get bullied at school, but then you go home and it's like, yeah, it's me time. Yeah, you only get bullied six hours a day, eight hours a day. But with digital, it's just nonstop and it can take different forms. So I do think that We have challenges that are not technological, that they are inherently human. Very true. There are some conversations that you don't want to censor. I guess that maybe the different framing would be, if you accept the basic premise that there are good and bad people, the question is, 
are the good people or the bad people in power censoring right. the rest? Mm-hmm. Or are they good and the bad people at the bottom trying to express themselves? And is it adding value or destroying value? And I think it's very fair to acknowledge that the relationship actually exists on both sides. It's very hard for any one person to assess who is the good and the bad. If someone's terrorist is another freedom fighter, but I think that in the forum, we have seen some very instances you can map out one-to-one. Issues with creatives DAO, $2 million in one year, super questionable ways of distributing money, everything across the leadership, the way that they approve funds for each other, etc. Funding gets stopped and the way in which they have systemically attacked and put pressure on everything, foundation, other council members, other projects. And the question is, at what point do we say you are literally destroying more value to the near ecosystem? Because I can tell you, there's people that do not go on the forum because they can't deal with that shit. There's people that go into an NDC meeting and they see the bickering and the fighting and they just, they don't want to deal with any of that. So I feel like, yeah, it's a big challenge. But yeah, what you're saying is it's far more at the social layer than it is at the technology layer at this point. And we keep coming back to it. A deeper People region. stay away from the social layer and you go into the deep tech because we don't want to deal with human insanity. But at some point they meet, right? It's, yeah, you can create a nuclear bomb, but maybe you don't want to have everyone in charge of it. I don't know. It's tricky. I honestly don't have answers for it. I'd love to see more people weigh in on those social challenges. I'm happy to say it. We don't have leadership on near on that front. Everyone's hiding behind keyboards. So anyway, it's a complex issue. It goes way beyond the forum. But if you yeah. can help, would be great. I noticed that the grants process, I think I was in one of the last grants that was done through a committee rather than through, or maybe done in a more centralized way. And now it's been loaded to a DAO and I would be dealing with different people if I just wanted to do a follow-up grant for the decent land stuff. Is that different? Is it different? Or is it like the same people with a different name? Do you have any insight into what's going on with the actual grants or projects building on Nia? I'd love to get a better insight on how other ecosystems do it. Mostly for reassurance that it's messy everywhere and just Mm -hmm. gonna pick your battles. There's a lot of things about Nia that frustrate me and that they are constantly being revised to try to improve. And if you think this is an ecosystem that may win, to just got to deal with it and try to contribute to it. The main issue with the grants program was that the people that were in charge of assessing the grants may not have had the technical experience mm-hmm. to ascertain the technology or... Yeah, it was a different kind of role. I do know that at some point... Near Foundation actually hired back engineers to be able to add to that because most of the engineering went over to Pagoda. So them offloading that grant decision-making is probably a good thing on the assumption that the separate decision-making body will have people that have more of the skills required to assess the applications. So for instance, met plenty of Foundation people, conferences and stuff. It's always striking to me that even though they have a lot of power in an operational sense, they're not as in tune with the community. They may not be crypto natives. They're definitely not degens. 
there's a handful of them that I can count that go back to 2016 days Ethereum. The rest just have a day job. It's an important day job. We need someone to do it. But when you show up and you're like, yeah, I've got some decentralized protocol. It's going to be a polycule in Panama and stuff. They honestly just didn't have the ability to tell. And the issue wasn't really the ability to tell whether it was something was good. It was the ability to tell whether they were just getting ripped off. There were so many applications for multi-chain applicants. There were so many applications without much to suggest that the team could execute or the idea had been validated. That's why in some ways, like the idea of the accelerator, because this funding is still there. It's just a little bit more. The framing that I like, that I hope they share is trying to maximize the chances of the success of the project. So you have a bit more visibility and you can pull in resources. So they've got a board of advisors, investors, they can probably source marketers, whatever the case may be. Yeah. To give these products more support. We'll see how it goes. Actually, you've made me more hopeful about applying, applying for a follow-up grant because I suppose what I was thinking is the people who reviewed the first grant and approved the milestones on that, if they're not around and they don't, they lack the context on what we've already done. And it's a sell. But what you're saying is actually we've, you've got more technical people on the job, more dedicated people, and it's possibly moving towards a... I'd like to think that the marketing DAO has a balance. The word balance is interesting because you can imagine that you're combining two things, each of which may be lacking or adding in a different way. So we have DACA who is, no one really knows where the fuck he comes from or who he knows, but he's very well connected with the near core team. So he's like the trusted one Like he centers us. Then we have two marketing professionals like Taylor and Lorraine and they have their own digital agencies. They do still work in the field. They bring a lot of structure, professionalism, et cetera. And then Carl and I, our guests are more on the community side. I'd say even more so myself, I'm just, I have a general awareness of everything happening in the ecosystem. And when we meet weekly, it's actually really interesting to see we discuss the proposals that we can't come up to a conclusion. And it's interesting to see their reasoning from a marketing side, my input from what I can see in the community. And yeah, we try to work with proposals to get them over the line. Once again, like you may see a community or a project doing great stuff, or maybe the proposal, it's very poorly expressed. You'd be surprised how often that happens. People were not born to write proposals and the forum looks shit too. So it's, a, it's an interesting balance. And hopefully that's a balance that all the decision-making bodies can strike. Can you have someone out there that has used our weave and understands the need and understands identity and reputation? There are words that become a bit cliche, but when you actually try to use them, you're like, oh, it clicks. I had one extra question. Okay. I wanted to ask you about ANS. Yes. Has anyone said ANS? They haven't actually. You know what? They haven't. Hold Matter up. of time, multicultural it's world. <laughs> It's got to be because, yeah, Sam was saying, uh, you know how you got, what is it, NEPs, NIA, I don't know what you call them, NIA, you e EIPs in Ethereum. Yeah, NIP, it's Near Improvement Proposal. Yes, that. So ANS is actually from the Arweave Network Standard as well. I didn't realize that this was a naming clash as well. But yeah, Sam said to me, we're actually going to change ours away because it sounds too much like anus. And I was like, the ANS sound like anus. I <laughs> am very happy that not only am I the only one that didn't think about that, that thought about that, but that Sam, the founder himself is aware about that. 
Yes, very aware. Now, so what do you know about anus? <laughs> These are a call to action. I know that I think they are about to launch or they just launched. What should yes. people listening that are interested in checking out ARC and Decent Land and are with? Where should we go? What's out there for us right now? Yeah, so I think the best place to keep up to date with stuff is probably to join the Discord, which is discord.gg forward slash Decent Land, wherein there will be whitelisting for the ANS names, which should be going live for minting in tentatively two, three weeks. And that mint site for that will be ans.gg. And there will be a marketplace and a way to mint on there. They can act as a basically a permanent proxy for an Arweave address, which is no renewal fees ENS. And it also has novel intended mechanisms that I'm not going to get into because it's quite a long job. But yes, that's the call to action. Join the Discord and you can you can get involved there. Also, we'll be doing retroactively looking back at who has interacted with Decent Land the most and used our protocols. And that will be part of the whitelisting criteria as well. I'm not necessarily going to be saying that everywhere, but yeah, we'll be running that too. This is just you and I, and there's no one else listening. <laughs> I like it. Look, I am ashamed to admit, like, I am paranoid. I am old. I like to think that my OPSEC is relatively good. I saw an ad on Twitter. Should have been the first red flag. A bloody ad on Twitter offering a free app to name. Okay. I okay. am basically on a hunt to get Alejandro dot all the blockchains that I can get. And right. I went to the bloody link. It required some apps to sign the transaction to claim Alejandro dot APT allegedly was available. So I had to go to a sex swap, send over, I sent like two bucks worth of apps. And guess mm -hmm. what happened? You lost it. And got when much. I signed, all the Aptus was gone and I did not get any an Aptus name. So blame is on me. I should have never clicked on a Twitter ad or I should have mm -hmm. done some more research. It was only two bucks, so no hurt feelings. What I'm trying to say is I'll do anything to get my dot anus. <laughs> Is it going to be .ar or what's the... .ar. Alejandro. I love it. Perfect. That's awesome. I will definitely be joining the Discord and claiming that I actually have one podcast ahead of you. So the timing may actually be close enough to the release of the ANS. Awesome. Are you going to near Denver? I'm not. A couple of people from the team are, but actually Chris... Right. I think he, he was in the near ecosystem before me. And then we poached him as our marketing guy for Decent Land. Chris. Chris Banks. You would know him, I think. I, you've, I think you've spoken. Well, I heard on the Ready Layer One podcast that he knows me from Misfits. So yeah, we must have worked together. I'm just not placing him no, or, or the name. Yeah, yeah. Prop that. He's got all kinds of different pseudonyms and changes them all the time. So I can't even keep track well, of what it's called. We don't want to dox him. Yes. That's very good. Friend, it's been almost two hours. Are there any burning questions, comments, topics that you want to make sure that we bring up? I think we're good. It's been, it's been a quick two hours. God, good luck editing That's it down. Climbing goes by so fast when you're having fun. Yeah. No, I'm just going to thank you so much. It's been great. Ah, oh, this is the first of many, I'm sure.
But yeah, lovely meeting you. I hope to talk again more about governance. It's cool to meet a governance OG. So yeah, let's let me use you for product development in the future. I'd love to. Sir Benjamin, thanks so much. Thank you so much, Alejandro. Have a good date and uh, hopefully talk soon. That's the end of another episode. As always, I just want to thank you for listening because let's be honest, you are amazing. And I also want to remind everyone that everything contained on this episode is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast shall be construed as financial, medical, or any other type of advice. And you should always consult with licensed professionals before making any financial decisions. Make sure that you like and subscribe so that you stay up to date with the latest episode. We've got a steamy hot pipeline of guests that will keep you entertained right through the bear market. Stay safe out there and I'll see you soon. Bye.